Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. This is Julia LaRoche. Everyone knows DoubleLine Capital's CEO, Jeffrey Gunlock, but I caught up with DoubleLine's other Jeff, Jeffrey Sherman, the deputy CIO who's seen as a rising star at the firm. This is the full audio from our interview. I hope you enjoy. The stock market is at a record high, and each time it climbs to new highs, valuations become more stretched. One of the most widely followed valuation measures is the CAPE, or the Cyclically Adjusted Price-to-Earnings Ratio. We're joined by a CAPE expert, Jeffrey Sherman, the deputy CIO of DoubleLine Capital, where he's a portfolio manager for a number of funds, including the DoubleLine Schiller Enhanced CAPE Fund and the DoubleLine Strategic Commodity Fund. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Julia, for having me today. Well, thanks for stopping by. It's great to be here. So a lot of folks keep talking about this. We see CAPE at elevated levels, and they're saying this means trouble for the stock market. Yet the market continues to reach new highs. So what are people getting wrong about CAPE? Well, the, the problem is we have this small sample size issue. And what I mean by that is historically, uh, the CAPE ratio has only achieved this uh, level of, of north of 30 uh, two times previously to the current environment. Uh, in one case, it was uh, around the Great Depression in, in the 30s, and you had a massive stock market crash. Uh, the next time it hit it was in the tech bubble, um, and stocks went up significantly and then ultimately crashed. So a lot of people are portending this high valuation metric of signaling an impending doom or crash to the markets. And what I mean by small sample size is, again, we've only had two instances where it's been at this level. And in one case, you made a lot of money before the, the eventual collapse of the, uh, of the stock market. And in one case, it happened quite quickly. And so, again, no one knows clairvoyance and market timing. And you have to go back to what the CAPE ratio is. It's a valuation metric. And so what do valuation metrics tell you? They have a way of valuing future returns. And so what we like to think about you know, when talking about valuation is that when valuations are above average, it means you should expect below average returns. When they're below average, you should expect above average returns. And not surprisingly, at average, you kind of expect average returns. So what the CAPE ratio is telling us is that we should expect low average returns going forward, at least over the next 10-year kind of uh, window, if history is any guide. Now that said, it's still a positive number. It's talking about a couple of percent in real terms. So that means after adjusted for inflation. So perhaps we're talking about an annualized return of maybe you know, in the 3 to 5% range. Um, still a positive rate of return, uh, but nothing that people are used to in the stock market. Now, DoubleLine has a CAPE uh, fund that you manage. So, and you've also beaten the S&P since inception in late 2013. So how is it, how best to use CAPE? Yeah, well, the way the uh, product is ran is looking at the CAPE ratio of the sectors of the S&P 500. So it'll look at the energy sector, look at the material sector, uh, technology and the likes. And what it does is it looks at each sector's CAPE ratio relative to its own historical average. So what that's trying to tell you is where does valuation for these various sectors trade in a historical context? And so you're trying to normalize kind of that experience. And what you find is even in a market today uh, that has this elevated CAPE ratio, and it is above average, um, there are still sectors which trade below their historical averages. And so what the strategy tries to do is it takes the sectors of the S&P 500 and it takes the five cheapest ones and it puts that in the investment universe. And so those are the sectors you want to buy. Um, however, knowing that valuation can get you in trouble, uh, think about people buying financial stocks because they look cheap in 2008, 
right? So what we do is apply a momentum filter to that, and that is of those five sectors, whichever one is having the worst rate of return of the last year, you throw it away. And you're left with four sectors, and you equally weight them. Um, and so you're simply trying to buy what are the cheapest parts of the market that don't have this bad breadth um, in them um, from this momentum side, and essentially say you don't have a view on which sectors should outperform, but let's just try to allocate to the cheapest sectors. And shockingly to most people is that there's actually five sectors which are at or below their kind of long-term historical averages, which says there is some cheapness left in this marketplace today. So which sectors are you positioned in today? So <clears throat> currently, uh, we're in consumer discretionary, uh, the industrial sector, technology, which shocks a lot of people thinking about the FANGs. Um, but what's also interesting is a lot of people don't realize that when you talk about the FANGs, some of them are in consumer discretionary. Uh, when you think about Amazon and Netflix, uh, two of them being actually in that channel. Uh, and then lastly, the healthcare sector as well. So those are the four sectors that the strategy is allocated to today. Now, you just mentioned that you did narrow it down to five where you toss one out that's yes. a value trap. So what did you toss out? So if you think about it and think about the performance this year, um, that sector's energy, right? Um, and the energy sector's had a very challenging time, although um, in the month of September and the first weeks of October, it's been on a tear in an upward direction. So uh, it didn't quite uh, get kicked. It still got kicked out um, as of the, the rebalance last month. Uh, but again, it's, it's on the precipice of being there. But the thing about energy is as the prices rise, the valuation starts to get close to being out of that universe as well. So again, we've got a couple of weeks until the next rebalance to see um, how the energy sector uh, will, will ultimately uh, come to fruition. And of the other sectors, what's the most valued right now? Uh, overvalued. Overvalued. Yes, well, overvalued. Um, and this, this will shock a lot of people and a lot of people don't want to hear it, but it's the financial sector. Why? Why? So let's rewind the clock, let's say about 11 and a half months ago. We had a market moving event. Uh, we had the election of President Trump and a new administration come through. And with the election, uh, what's funny is it kind of reminds me of the Obama campaign. It was a lot of change, right? Change and a lot of ideas of, of changing the administration, tax reform, health care reform, um, deregulation. And what, what uh, industry benefits the most from that? And so uh, what you saw is the financial sector going on a tear post-election. In fact, it's been one of the best performing sectors of the market, uh, and it's done so without actually earnings catching up significantly. And so again, by using a long-term earnings perspective, it makes this being uh, the financial sector being the most overvalued um, of all the sectors of the S&P 500, again, according to this relative CAPE metric. Well, speaking of President Donald Trump, he has been tweeting about the stock market hitting all-time highs. Now, does he really deserve credit for the market? Well, if you ask him, he'd say absolutely, right? I mean, he's the president. The stock market is what the president is in charge of. Um, I, I, not one policy has uh, the president ev evoked into the marketplace that has caused this. Now, he has caused a, a lot of rhetoric, or he's, he's contributed to the rhetoric of that we're going to have tax reform, the plan's coming out. The plan's coming out, Julia. The plan is coming. We have the okay. best plan, and it's going to be a great plan, and it's coming. Uh, but there's been no follow through. And so it's not, I, I mean, some of it can't be just blamed squarely on the president. Uh, this is Congress. This is the world we've lived in for a couple of decades. Really, we haven't had coordination in Congress since the Bush administration, right? And that's early in the Bush administration, by the way. Um, so from the standpoint of, uh, of the president, he, he can't really take credit for it except continuing status quo. Markets like status quo. Markets don't like change. And for that, I'll give the president credit that he hasn't really changed much thus far, at least when it comes to financial and monetary policy, or fiscal policy issues. Well, do you also think he might be setting himself up for trouble should there be a sell-off? 
Yeah, of course, but uh, he'll blame someone else for that. At least that, that seems to be kind of uh, historically what he's done. Um, so, yeah, you can take you take credit for the positive attributes, and it's someone else's fault, right? It's the old, old adage that uh, success has many fathers and failure's an orphan, right? And so, uh, again, setting himself up for failure, he's going to blame someone else that it's Congress's fault, it's someone else's fault. Um, so it's great It's great to have all-time highs in the stock market. Everybody likes that, unless you're not invested, of course. Well, has the market detached itself from reality? Well, I don't think it's detached itself from reality per se. I think what it is more is that if you think about tax reform, especially on the corporate side, it's extremely beneficial to the stocks. Why is it beneficial? Well, we're talking about forward discounting mechanisms, right? If I get tax reform tomorrow, I get it one month from now, or I get it really six months from now, that, that warrants a higher multiple today because those earnings will be growing significantly on an after-tax basis. That is, net incomes increase um, when you look at after tax. And so I, I think the stock market is setting itself for, for failure if there's no deliverable. Uh, but at this stage, I, I think it's somewhat warranted. But what's strange enough is if you look at it, the bond market doesn't believe in any type of tax reform, uh, whether it's on the corporate or the personal side when you look at uh, where spreads and yields are in various parts of the market. But that's the different, I call it the intertemporal balance, right? The bond market's contemporaneous looking at today where the stock market has all these years of earnings that it's trying to discount back. And so, again, uh, the disconnect between the two markets actually does make sense when you stop and think about it. That's interesting. So going back to the 1980s or since the early 80s, we've seen interest rates, they've been coming down uh, since that time. Yeah. So now we have a Fed that um, is tightening monetary policy, um, rising rates. So how does that factor into the CAPE strategy? Well, <clears throat> when we look at the uh, CAPE ratio, the um, uh, interest rates are not really a component of that. Um, yeah, when you think about valuation interest rates, obviously interest rates matter. Uh, but, you know, people like to use this anchoring point of the 80s, right, to think that this was a smooth ride. People just made a killing in bonds year in, year out. And it's just not the case. Um, in fact, if you take interest rate history back to post-World War II, the, the aberration is the late 70s, early 80s, this high inflationary environment when we got off the gold standard. And so when you start to look at the real interest rate, that is the level of interest rates we observe, what we call nominal interest rates, less inflation, that number is really about average. It's maybe a little below average. Um, so that's really what matters is the real interest rate in the economy. And the Fed tightening policy, um, we'll have to see whether they're right or not in terms of this inflation uh, delivering below target as being transitory. Uh, it's kind of hard to say it's transitory when it's been occurring for four consecutive years. Uh, but the idea that the Fed is tightening is because we have this growth, uh, coordinated global growth today. Uh, it's not as high as people like it. Um, you know, the president was on TV talking about a 3% growth in GDP last quarter. That's one quarter. On a year-over-year -year basis, it's running about 2%, like 2.1%, 2.2%. So between that range, that's exactly the rate we've been post-financial crisis. So we're growing. We have controlled inflation. This is actually kind of one of those Goldilocks scenarios. Uh, the Fed is raising rates, but don't forget, they're also starting to unwind a piece of their balance sheet. And that's the big wild card that really no one knows how to assess um, from the standpoint of th its marginal impact in the market because we've never really had this level of excess reserves in the system. Now, you also run a commodities fund yeah. that has been outperforming the benchmark. How should investors think about commodities? Yeah, that, that, that's one of the big questions. A lot, of, a lot of investors came late to the commodity party 
um, where we had this, what people refer to as a super cycle in commodities, essentially when China was consuming, you know, way above historical averages and really driving the price uh, upward of commodities. And so when we think about commodities, we, you know, there's two ways to kind of approach it. The long only approach, which, you know, if you're just buying commodities day in, day out, you're going to suffer an economic downturn. So it, it's one of these type of um, uh, asset classes where it's very difficult to be long only all the time. And so we think you should also introduce the short leg component. So we prefer to run a long short type of commodity strategy where we're agnostic to the direction of commodities, but using quantitative signals to generate those positions. Now, the way we've actually structured our strategy and our fund is to combine those two things together because we know investors don't want to watch oil spike and understand that we have this long short portfolio and you're not participating in that because they view commodities as somewhat of a hedge to certain positions in their portfolio. So why not just give yourself always be exposed to this long only component? And so we says at the minimum, we're going to put half of our portfolio in just the best way, what we think is a smarter way. Some people call smart beta, just a, a more optimal way of, of introducing that long allocation. And we also know from the commodities market that market timing is a very powerful thing. That is momentum is very powerful there. So you think about the commodity trading advisors. They tend to go long commodities when they're going up and try to short them when they're going down. And that creates a lot of momentum within there. So let's use momentum as a way of allocating how much we should be to this long bucket and how much we should be to long short bucket. And so it does sound very complex, but what we're saying and why we named it the Strategic Commodity Fund was that we think of it as having a strategic part of your asset allocation in this strategy. Let us deal with the timing and when you should be long only, when you should have more of this long short portfolio. And again, just think of it as a stable kind of uncorrelated bet in your portfolio, which can help overall reduce uh, portfolio risk. And thus far, it, it's been a good performing strategy. Well, for years, the commodity story has been driven by emerging markets, specifically the infrastructure and the build out there. So is that story going to continue for commodities? Well, you talked about the president and his objectives. Remember one thing we talked significantly about uh, during the election was infrastructure. And how's that infrastructure bill coming along, right? Uh, we're waiting. We're still waiting. But again, um, what you've seen this year is uh, it's amazing to see actually the coordinated growth. And I, I keep I keep using this phrase. But if you take the um, what's called the OECD, the developed world, um, and you combine that with the top 10 emerging markets by GDP, they're all growing right now. We haven't had this coordinated growth since 04, 05, and 06. There's usually someone that's, that's exhibiting some sort of recessionary behavior. And what you're seeing is not only this growth, you're seeing consumption build for a lot of these industrial commodities. Copper's hit, hitting new highs since the cycle. Aluminum has finally broken out of its range. Uh, nickel continues to be in, in strong demand. So these are commodities that are talking about the true global economy. These are things that are building. I mean, in New York City, I mean, the amount of cranes here, come to Los Angeles, you'll see it. There is a large build out and there is this need for commodities. So we are actually in kind of this commodity boom, but it's overshadowed by the S&P 500, which sets highs every day. The commodity market's doing quite well. Um, again, it's, it's flat year to date, but in the last three or four months, um, it's had very, very strong performance. Now, how does the Fed tightening monetary policy impact the commodities market? So that's a very complex uh, um, uh, situation. So the Fed with monetary policy, the question is, what does it do to the dollar, right? And a lot of people think Fed tightening leads to a stronger dollar, which would inherently be bad for commodities since they're priced in dollars. Uh, we've done a lot of work on this, especially on the bond side, thinking about the Fed's behavior relative to the dollar. 
And in all the Fed hiking cycles, you know, since the Volcker era, what we find is that essentially the dollar either rallies or it sells off. In fact, almost half the time it does one or the other. And so there's no really strong relationship. In fact, in this Fed hiking cycle, the dollar has been declining, which actually is accretive to uh, the commodity complex. Again, a weaker dollar uh, means that um, uh, people can buy more of the commodity uh, in other currencies. And so uh, from the standpoint of the Fed uh, directly influencing it, um, again, I think the Fed is not going to be able to deliver on their dot plot projections. Um, it's hard to really know what's going to happen in 2018. Half the board of governors or the voting members are gone. They've either quit, retired, or they're on their way out. And so we're going to have a whole new makeup. So uh, I, don't, I think it's too early to look at monetary policy for thinking about commodities. But the idea is more thinking about, um, again, something to diversify out the portfolio that behaves in a def different economic environment than traditional stocks and bonds. Well, when people think of double line, they think of fixed income, they think of bonds. Yep. So with um, rates rising, that's not necessarily good for bonds. So how should investors think about uh, rising rates? Well, uh, there is this, this interesting idea that interest rates going up are negative for bonds, and that's true instantaneously. Uh, but people forget about the most critical component of fixed income, and that's actually the income side. And so if you have bonds that, let's just say, pay on a monthly basis, and yields are going up, all of a sudden I'm getting income that I can reinvest at higher yields. Okay, so yes, it inherently decreases a little bit of the price of your securities. Again, depends on where you are uh, on the interest rate curve. But what's important here is you're reinvesting at higher yields. So it's not, it, when, when people say, well, what if this happens to rates, you know, if rates go up 1% over the next year, what happens to the portfolio? And I say, well, what is the path of that 1%? If it spikes 1% tomorrow and stays there, Right? It's gonna, you're going to feel instantaneous pain, but all that cash flow will be reinvested significantly higher. But if it's a smooth rate rise, you'll have a smooth pass of reinvesting, and you won't even see it as much. And so again, um, it's, it's, yes, mathematically, bonds prices have to go down when yields go up um, you know, for, for most bonds. However, you have to think about the reinvestment component, and that actually is the biggest component of one's return. Um, again, that, that's something that's lost on a lot of individual investors. Now, Double Line's other Jeff, Jeffrey Gunlock, has said that he thinks Neil Kashkari could be the next Fed chair. So who do you think it is? Um, you know, I, I, I like that vote. Um, I say, in general, give me a list of candidates and we'll pick the most dovish. Uh, the dovish being the one who leans to easy interest rate policy. And right now, um, that's Jerome Powell, right? Uh, Powell is the kind of, 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 the, of the short list we see, which Kashkari is not on. Um, it happens to be Powell. Uh, but again, uh, we could nominate another governor and that could be that, that could be the head of the Fed. So uh, it's too early to tell. Uh, we do not believe that President Trump uh, wants a very strong or a, a tightening policy uh, from the Fed, uh, because if you push interest rates up, that makes the cost of debt go up for the U.S. government. And so, um, you know, we, we strongly believe that President Trump is a debt guy, uh, just given his history. He likes debt. He's from real estate. He likes to finance at low rates. And why would you put someone in uh, as the, the chair of the Fed uh, who's going to go against that type of policy? So, again, give me the most dovish, uh, give me the list. We'll pick the most dovish. And the reason for uh, Neil Kashkari's name being on there, of the Fed governors out there, he's obviously the most dovish, and he writes significantly about it on his blogs, and he's been very transparent as well. Uh, so I think Kashkari has done a good job of explaining his position, uh, which we haven't seen from a lot of the Fed governors. And before we let you go, I'd love to get your thoughts on Bitcoin. Bitcoin. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's one of those things that uh, we don't put in our portfolios today. Um, I think the technology is interesting. I've been learning more about it. Uh, when I say technology, I'm talking about the blockchain, the underlying technology of Bitcoin. Uh, but it needs to have, it's got to reduce the cost of transactions. It's still very expensive to trade across it. Um, it needs to stabilize in terms of the volatility of the price. Um, you can't call it a store of value when it's moving around hundreds of dollars a day. Um, but again, it, I think it's, it's, it's pushing technology forward. Um, and I think the blockchain does have a lot of, um, of powers in our field. Uh, you think about matching up homeowners to mortgages, um, scanning law documents, who's the official owner of things. There are some very powerful uses of it. Uh, but again, uh, usually the burgeoning technology doesn't win out. Uh, so I don't really have an opinion on Bitcoin one way or the other. Either it's going to be the most successful thing in the world or we're never going to talk about it five years from now. So. Well, how about cryptocurrencies in general? I, you know, I think the rise of the cryptocurrency has come from a disdain for central banks. And so what it is is a lot of the people who are gold bugs and they have another outlet now, right? To, it's a way of pulling myself out of the system. But let's think about Mt. Gox, right? Huge fraudulent scams. I mean, there's been many of these kind of uh, things that have happened in that, in that area. So until we beef up the true security behind it, um, you're, you're taking incremental risks that, again, are hard to quantify. Uh, but I think cryptocurrencies, I think a lot of it can be pinned on, um, you know, the central bank setting negative interest rate policy. You know, you think about that where economists say we're indifferent whether we buy bonds or we actually put the overnight lending rate negative. Well, overnight lending rate negative actually impacts all depositors, right? You're actually taking money away from them from depositing the system. So um, I, I think there is some correlation there. I call me a little bit of a conspiracy theorist, perhaps. But in general, I, I would argue that there is some correlation between this, this ex elongated uh, negative interest rate policy in the eurozone and this rise of this. And again, if you think about a lot of the stories, uh, people are talking about you know Chinese wanting to get their money out of the system, and it's a way of doing it. Again, no one knows it's all done magically with ones and zeros, uh, but it is something interesting, and I don't think we can neglect it as being an alternative tool uh, for the future. Jeffrey Sherman, Deputy CIO of Double Line Capital, thank you so much for coming by. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.